Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. We've got a little bit of follow-up from our last episode on enamel. We spent the entire episode talking about Namikawa Yasuyuki, and I ended up mispronouncing his name early on in the show, which meant that John mispronounced his name through the show as well. The pronunciation that we used in the last episode is incorrect. It is Namikawa Yasuyuki. Uh, We also misattributed the upcycled Apple Watch. It was in fact made by Till Lauterman and Matt, the watch nerd, uh, confirmed that it is a fully functional watch. And uh, we have updated the show notes from last episode with the the correct information, the correct link for, uh, for Till. Baselworld 2018 just wrapped up, and despite being shorter and smaller than it has been in more recent years, uh, we still got hit with a fire hose worth of, of time pieces. And uh, I thought it'd be good for us just to, to touch on on some of the ones that stood out to us. Uh, we certainly won't touch on on every single watch because uh, it's just uh, not at all within the the realm of, of reason. Absolutely. There, there are just too many watches that come out of these shows to reasonably be able to to discuss them. It is also a bit odd because SIHH wrapped up in January. And from the other industries that I've been, it, it feels weird having two large shows like this for the same industry back to back. What are the significant differences between these two shows? Because I, I think for, for an outsider looking at them, it, it would be easy to confuse what these two shows are since many of the same brands show up at both of them there are two very distinct shows now there is some overlap with the independent watchmakers and that's simply because uh number one they have traditionally exhibited at, at basil world because they collectively together pay for a booth uh because in most instances, uh, an independent watchmaker wouldn't be able to afford to have a, a booth at Basel. Uh, so they, they band together under the, the Academy of Independent uh, Horologists and rent out a booth there. And just last year, uh, they were invited for the first time to also exhibit at SIHH by the organizers there. SIHH stands for the Salon International de Autologerie, which is effectively high-end horology so that's one of the big distinguishing factors just how merited that sort of distinction is isn't particularly valid basil's much more broad the genesis of of sihh is is more so the lies with the the richmond group and and their brands that's why you'll, you'll find it is dominated by all of the brands that fall under their umbrella so you've got cartier and langenzona jeje le coutre and whatnot but they have been wooing more and more brands away from Basel over the years, Hermes being uh, one of the the more recent ones this past year. Hermes uh, showcased at SIHH rather than Basel World, And I, I didn't attend SIHH, but I'm, I'm almost curious whether that means that uh, that also means that for the very first time, the Apple Watch appeared at the uh, Salon International de Autologerie because uh, they are in partnership with Apple for a number of timepieces. So I would imagine being a watch show that Hermes would have shown up their, their smart mm. watch, but I'm not 100% sure of that. Yeah. 
yeah that would have been interesting to see since it's uh it's such a change uh from the traditional watch world and has been derided by much of the uh the traditional watch world so it'd be interesting to see if it showed up and how it was received mm-hmm. i know it certainly didn't get any coverage in the uh the main watch press so yeah well there's no, wouldn't have been anything new announced there no in, no, no, in that respect not. so not really not really newsworthy but it I could very well have been uh, in a showcase there but speaking of of hotelogy or hotelology uh, that isn't to say there's any sort of dearth of, of hot de gamme pieces at Basel World. In fact, you'll you'll find some very high-end pieces there, some of which we'll get to a, a little bit later. Uh, but one I thought would be good to, to touch on, just sort of transitioning from our episode last week where we spoke in depth about enamel dials, did you happen to see the Presage automatic from Seiko with the, the Shippo enamel dial and, and the Guilloche patterning underneath it yeah i did get a chance to see this and i'm incredibly impressed by this watch the seiko designs are i find to be pretty conservative they don't tend to change the design dramatically from year to year you know they they haven't strayed very far from sort of their original designs they often aren't doing anything crazy with their cases but this is a an interesting dial it's a this one's a blue enamel dial, and it is a hard enamel that they're doing with it. The Shippo technique I am not at all familiar with, and, and just from the quick press releases that I've seen, it looks like this is a traditional style of enamel work uh, that's being done in an, an area of Japan. And I honestly don't know what the differences are between it and other forms of enamel that are out there. Uh, but they are doing an enamel dial. I suspect that that is not a hand-cut guilloche pattern. It's probably using some mass production technique like stamping Mm -hmm. because this watch is, I think it's retailing for $1,400 US. Yeah, that's correct. And I don't know how it would be possible to do a a hand guilloche dial with enamel for fourteen hundred dollars, mm-hmm. let alone put that on a watch for fourteen hundred dollars. So it's a beautiful looking watch. I would love to see one of these in person. And based on on what I know about uh, Seiko's manufacturing and their and their movements, I suspect this is a steal for the the price that you're uh, that they're charging for it. And just as a comparison point, how much do your your pens go for with the, the similar <laughs> technique? Well, I, I think my my guilloche and enamel pens started around thirty five hundred dollars US. Mm. Now, of course, I'm not making them in the in the quantity that they're making them in, and I'm I'm making them one at a time. But still, you know, they they probably have a number of workmen who are working on these dials at the same time. Mm. But still, it's an impressive impressive feat being able to produce a watch, uh, an in house watch like this with a a beautiful guilloche dial with enamel mm-hmm. for that price. So, mm-hmm. I agree. Hats off to uh, to Seiko for for figuring that out. It also looks like they're printing the dial on top of the enamel. So many of the enamel dials that you see out there, uh, whether it's um, from uh, Kari Vudalainen or Vacheron Constantin, the Gronfeld brothers. Yeah, yeah. It, when you see a lot of the traditional enamel 
dials, the numbers are often either on a separate band from the rest of the dial or they're they're separate physical pieces that are that are mounted onto the dial so they're which takes significantly more work and effort to uh, to make these ones have uh, clearly been printed onto the dial and i'd be curious to know if they have been printed in enamel or if they are just printed with an ink on top of it uh, because you can print with an enamel paint effectively and then fire that enamel to get your design on it so I'd be curious to find out if this is a traditional pad printing with regular ink or if this is actually pad printed with an enamel. So that, that is one way that they're saving some money on these uh, on these dials by printing them mm-hmm. instead of having separate physical numbers for the display. Yeah, I'm definitely going to try uh, try finding one of these to check out in person because it's, uh, it's a great looking watch and it certainly looks like it's worthwhile uh, paying attention to. Hmm. Yeah, it may be hard to get your hands on. It's a, a limited edition. I imagine many of them will will sell before they even hit hmm. the showcases in stores. Good to know. Sega also uh, released uh, a thinner uh, watch this year, the, the Seiko 6L. And thinner, more wearable watches uh, seem to be a little bit in vogue this year. Uh, another one that stood out to me was Tudor's Black Bay 58, which is certainly a, a much more wearable, uh, as far as my my own personal taste <laughs> go, version of the Black Bay. I found the, the normal Black Bay is a, quite a bit too tall. This one is reminiscent to me of, say, a, a Rolex 5508, which is uh, one of the early Submariners. And if I had my choice of Submariners, if I were to wear a Submariner... Uh, the 55 would actually probably be my my personal choice or, or go-to, just because I find it to be a, a much more wearable timepiece than than the more modern ones. Uh, but that said, I wouldn't personally uh, put my money down on a, a Black Bay 58, because it, it still seems just a, a touch too big for, for my own taste, but it's certainly more within the, the realm of reason for for my wrist size. Hmm. But that, that was a welcome change. There are a number of brands that were releasing watches that were smaller and more wearable for, for people with smaller wrists and uh, targeted uh, at ladies in a lot of cases. So it was uh, refreshing compared to other years. Another thing with the, the Black Bay 58 is it's got some of, uh, I guess you could call it Fotina going on, where they, they try and make the watch look older than it actually is. And another one that made quite a splash, although it wasn't officially announced, was the the Longines Military. Uh, did you see any pictures of, of that? Yeah, I haven't seen the uh, the Longines Military one. I I haven't really checked that out. I'm not a not necessarily a huge fan of a lot of the stuff that Longines does. Hmm. That one didn't didn't get my attention by any means. It did a an admirable job in in pulling off what they did and making it look as as old as they did that's hmm. uh i'm not sure that i like that idea of of pre-distressing stuff i guess it's something that can be done for you know for art pieces and things mm-hmm. but i it i'm not sure that i would want my watch to be pre-distressed or or intentionally made to look old I, i'm gonna do a, a fine job of damaging it and beating it up while i wear it so mm-hmm. I, I think i i think if i'm buying a watch i want it to be you know to be pristine i guess it's sort of like people who buy pre-worn jeans they want jeans that have already been worn by somebody and and sort of pre-distressed and i i've never really understood that idea 
That's exactly the the comparison I was going to bring up is the the pre worn denim, which I thought for a time was just a fad, but it doesn't seem to have disappeared. No, and people pay an incredible premium for these pre worn jeans as well, which it's shocking to me. So mm-hmm. anyway, I, I I'm not a big fan of the idea. I haven't I haven't seen this watch in particular yet, but I, I'm not a big fan of this idea of of pre patinaing a uh, a watch. Yeah, it's not my particular cup of tea, but I can understand what they're attempting to Mm. achieve. And I think it was actually summed up quite well in an open letter to the Swiss watch industry from a a so-called frustrated millennial that was (laughs) published on on watches by SJX a few weeks back. It was written by um, Brandon Moore, uh, who I believe is a software developer living in, in Seattle. Right. And the way that that he summed it up is that millennials want to love watches because they can transcend the increasingly rapid pace of change that permeates their lives. So by making watches that harken back to uh, a slower period of time, say the 1950s, uh, or a slower pace of life, uh, it gives a sense of reprieve, I suppose, Hmm. that pre-worn denim doesn't quite do. Right. I, I think... It's just a nice clean break from the the rapid pace of life today, living uh, in this world saturated by by social media and glowing slates of glass and and all that. Another piece that Longines announced this year that was a surprise to me, and I haven't heard many people talk about, is they announced an annual calendar. And what's most impressive to me about this announcement was the price point because uh, they're selling it for around four thousand swiss francs which to the best of my knowledge is the the cheapest that you can get an annual calendar in a mechanical timepiece from any brands anywhere at the moment now i'm used to hearing about people creating perpetual calendar movements and that seems to be what what gets a lot of focus uh, what exactly is an annual calendar so an annual calendar gives you kind of the best of a perpetual calendar in terms of the convenience side of things without the complexity or price point of a perpetual calendar. So a perpetual calendar will automatically change the date for you at the end of the month to the first of the month, whether that month ends on the 30th, the 28th, or the 29th. Whereas an annual calendar will do essentially the same thing, but it will only account for months that end in 30 days. So every year, once a year, you know you have to change the date manually at the end of February, whereas a perpetual mm. calendar will account for leap years for you, will account for every single February to an extent. Uh, that's because our, our calendar system's quite complicated. And I find, like, being mechanical timepieces, most owners of perpetual calendars wind up having to set their watches once or twice a year anyway, unless they're keeping it on a, a winder all the time. But then as well, you have a number of perpetual calendars that are manual wind and not automatic. So it's the sort of piece that you would need to be wearing every single day and, and winding every day if you don't want to have to go through the rigmarole of having to set the calendar. And setting the calendar system on a perpetual calendar is quite an involved process. And if you do it at the wrong time of day, you can end up causing quite a bit of damage depending on the make of the movement. Uh, there are there are some brands with a number of patents that, that prevent you from from damaging the movement. 
Uh, but it, it's a very complex system, whereas a, an annual calendar is, is significantly simpler to, to set and uh, comes in at a, a much more affordable price point. The first annual calendar I was aware of was made by Tech Philippe hmm. back in the, the 1990s. There are records of in Breguet's archives of annual calendars, but uh, to the best of my knowledge, those aren't annual calendars in the modern sense, but rather a, a calendar that would have displayed the, the month, the day of the week, uh, as well as the, the date, and then occasionally sometimes as well the, the years, and, and tick those up for you too. Mm. Uh, but it's referring more to the display of having a full annual display rather than an annual calendar, which you can have in a, a really simple version, just the, the date window, and then say a, a small hand indicating the month or having a an aperture for both the, the month and the date. Now, Longines sibling brand Omega also has an annual calendar that they released two years ago, but it comes in at twice the the price of this new piece from Longines. And I would think that the next closest in price would be the MIH watch designed by uh, Ludwig Olsen, I believe is how you pronounce his name. And um, he now runs the brand Oxen Jr. Uh, but he designed uh, a rather simple system for, for making an annual calendar for the MIH Museum. And that, I believe, you can actually still buy new today. And it's about 6,000 Swiss francs. But apart from those hmm. pieces, if you want to get into a, an annual calendar, you're, you're looking at uh, spending five figures or so. Uh, the Skydweller from Rolex, which also has an annual calendar system, it's around 15,000 Swiss francs to get uh, the stainless steel version, I believe. And then anything from any other brand, whether it be uh, Patek or Black Pain or, or what have you, you're getting well up in, into five-figure territory to get your hands on, a, on an annual calendar. So this is a, a welcome complication from Longines, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting under the dial of, of this timepiece when I have the opportunity. I'm curious to see where they go with this. It is a nice complication to see it, it's a bit better than just a standard date window and the price point is perfect. So uh, I'm happy to see them doing something that's that's a little bit different that isn't some crazy expensive complication. Now, a different timepiece from Omega that comes in at around the same price point as the Longines annual calendar that they announced this year is the Omega Seamaster 300, which harkens back to the, the Pierce Brosnan Bond era with the, the wave dial. But the interesting thing about the, the dial on this particular piece is that they have made it from ceramic, hmm. which uh, as in terms of any of the big brands, this is the, the first big brand I know of to have introduced a ceramic dial into a production timepiece. The ceramic is starting to become more common for case design, but I don't know... I'm sure somebody's done a, a ceramic dial before, but I I certainly haven't seen anything like this being used as a as a dial material. Hmm. Yeah, when the Pelagos was first announced, I actually wondered if the dial was made of ceramic when I first got my hands on one because the bezel is a has a ceramic insert and the the dial is hmm. very closely matched to that, but it it does not have a ceramic dial on it. Right. The 
first watch I had heard of with a ceramic dial, which was also announced uh, the same month uh, as Baselworld 2018, although not at Baselworld, was the Broadstrom Double Impulse Chronometer, which is a very highly crafted, incredibly well thought through in the mechanical sense timepiece from Frodsham. And uh, this is the first wristwatch they have, have made in, I believe, close to half a century and mm. incredibly well executed. And, and uh, the late Derek Pratt, who we'll, we'll link to in the show notes as well, is a, a excellent watchmaker, um, had quite a, a bit of influence on that, on that particular project as well. And it's nice to see it finally come to fruition and uh, now become available. But that is a, a not at all within the, the same price bracket as the, the Seamaster 300 or, or the Longines annual calendar. Hmm. But uh, it, it also has the, the ceramic dial. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what people start to do with uh, with these ceramic dials because it is a, it's a similar material in many ways to enamel. However, the process for making these ceramic dials and cases is very different than the enamels. And I, I'm curious to see what the limitations are of it. I don't think you're going to be able to get the same kind of translucency that you're getting out of the enamels. However, you can get very high polish out of them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm curious to see how people innovate with that and how they can get the the look and feel in some ways of the traditional enamel dials with this material that this sort of very advanced material that people are starting to use now. So mm -hmm. well, it's certainly has a leg up over painted dials in that they're not going to, to age in the same way that a painted dial would. So in the same Absolutely. way that you get a, an eternal look from an enamel dial, you, you can also get that, that now with the, the ceramic dials. Right, you're not getting any of the any of the effects of UV light on mm -hmm. on the paints or or anything like that, and uh, also these these are going to be far more durable. So if for some reason there mm -hmm. is an accident with it and there's some abrasion of some kind on the dial, it's nowhere near as susceptible to damage as uh, as a painted or printed dial would be, mm -hmm. and should be less susceptible to to hairline fractures and the like as well. Mm -hmm. Most Watch manufacturers use a zirconium-based ceramic. Generally, you're looking at a mix of, of aluminum oxide, which is essentially the same thing that the sapphire crystal on the front of most watches is made of. So you effectively need a, a diamond to, to scratch it. And then you mix in a, a bit of zirconium and uh, some yttrium oxide as well. So the aluminum oxide provides you that, that scratch resistance that you're, mm. you're not going to get from enamel. And the zirconium brings the resilience that, that'll help prevent fractures and, and cracks. And then the, the yttrium oxide adds, adds some stability to the mix. One of the other big technical advantages of ceramic versus enamel is that with enamel, you're, you're going to be applying the enamel onto some sort of a metal substrate. And because of the changes in coefficient of expansion between the enamel glass and the metal you have to be very careful as you're applying the enamel and letting it cool the enamel the glass is, is shrinking at a different rate than the metal is 
And while they try and match the enamels to the particular metal, you're always going to have that that fight where as the as the glass cools, it's trying to pull in towards the center of that dial. And so you'll see that on the backside of enameled pieces, there's a counter enamel that's been applied to it. And that counter enamel is there so that it fights against the urge for the enamel on the front side of the piece to pull the metal out of out of being flat. The short-term effects of that when you're actually enameling is you can have cracks that show up within half an hour, minutes, or whatever of the piece cooling down from the kiln. And even if you don't have it cracked sort of shortly after it comes out of the kiln, there are still a lot of stresses in that enamel, and you mm-hmm. can then end up with cracking happening years later. So if you take a look at a lot of vintage enamel dials, you'll see hairline fractures, hairline cracks uh, across the enamel dials. And a lot of that is actually coming from the uh, the tension that's in that glass, and, and it eventually ends up uh, ends up cracking on you. So certainly one of the advantages, technical advantages of this is going to be that it isn't going to have those stresses. And mm-hmm. I suspect because of that, they can also make it thinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the problems with enamel pieces is that First off, the larger the area of of metal that you're going to enamel, the thicker the metal has to be to help it uh, combat the the warpage that you're going to get from the enamel shrinking. And then, of course, you have to put the counter enamel on the back. So you have the enamel layer on the front, the thickness of the metal, and then the enamel layer on the back, the counter enamel. And all of that does add up to a fair bit of thickness. And, of course, you you only have so much room inside of these watches, so... It's. Uh, I suspect these these uh, dials are going to be much thinner than your average uh, enamel dial will be. Mm-hmm. And given that the material is as hard as it is when it comes to ceramic, the fact that Omega was able to to get these wave patterns into the dial is quite impressive. And although they they did not come right out and say it, I would imagine that for its particular model, they've employed a similar laser ablation technology that they use to create a, a, a very unique dial slash movement concept for a limited edition of the Speedmaster that they announced this year. And that's similar technology actually to what uh, Apple has been using for like, the micro perfs all the way back in the original Unibody Max where the, the indicator light would, would disappear into the, the aluminum when it wasn't on and, and they've and and they've since evolved to use that that technology from doing everything from deburring components uh, post processing after CNC machining to actually engraving the knurling on the aluminum versions of the Apple Watch crown. That's all done with with lasers or laser ablation. Yeah, and certainly this engraved style that they've done that Omega has done on this this dial is not something that you could do easily with enamel either. The Enamel really needs to be flat, and mm-hmm. trying to do an engraved pattern like that, like this, just wouldn't be possible on enamel. At least, I, I'm not aware of it being possible. Just because, again, you'd you'd have to figure out a way of of cutting away that parts of that glass without affecting the rest of it, and without affecting the stresses in the in the glass as well, which is the real problem. Mm-hmm. Now, another very unique dial, certainly not not something I've seen before in terms of a, a date display was the the Nomos Neomatic and you 
you mentioned to me this, this particular piece stood out to you. What about it uh, do you like in particular? Yeah, one of the things I'll say to begin with is that I, I love what Nomos is doing with their their brand, with their designs. Uh, first off, they're doing everything in-house, which is, uh, or at least they're, they're making all their, their movements in-house, which is nice to see. Uh, they're a relatively inexpensive brand in terms of companies that are doing everything in-house. Um, they're, you know, they're not, they're not massive. They're, they're, you know, they're obviously not a Rolex or anybody like that, but they are still doing everything in-house and they're releasing things at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a big fan of the simple design that they've, they've chosen to, to stick with for their design language. Uh, it's a very simple, graphic, uh, minimalist design. And one of the things they've excelled at over the years is finding different ways of, of indicating dates that don't complicate the uh, the dial very much. Uh, I'm not a big fan of date windows for the most part. And the reason why is because I find that most dates tend to clutter up the the dial too much. This particular one is is interesting. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody do something like this. Occasionally, you'll see dials with the date around the outside of the dial, and there's a separate hand that indicates around the outside of the dial. And that is often a good look, and I, I do like that. I'd certainly prefer it over the little the little uh, flipping date number that uh, that shows up near, usually near the three o'clock position. Uh, but they've gone a, a step further with this. Instead of having a separate hand that indicates the number of the of the month, they've gone off and they have small cutouts separating the numbers and little red indicators that sort of light up either side of the number as the date changes. So on their on their website, you can see the twenty seventh is the date. And you have these little these little red da- dashes on either side of the twenty seven to indicate that that's the uh, the day of the month. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of the way they've done this. They've we don't really talk a lot about UX design in watches, uh, the user experience. I think it's something that a lot of brands could actually do with is is good UX or better UX design. And I think Nomos has done a spectacular job of introducing a date feature, which is often a poor user experience on a watch face, making it clean, making it simple, and making it very legible. It's it's very easy to figure out what the date is on this. So anyway, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Nomos, and uh, I'm certainly a big fan of the way that they've done this particular date design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not seen a, a piece with this exact uh, style of indicating the date, flanking the, the date the way that they they've done there have been a couple of other brands have done something similar with the the date disc underneath the dial peeking up uh, just as a say a mm-hmm. dot uh, that would be a particular color versus all the other dots been, being a different color uh, fossil was one uh, and there's another i can't remember off the top of my head that was created by a designer back in the the mid 90s that's uh, certainly a very different user interface for displaying the date I personally think there's still a little bit of room for for improvement here, but it would require uh, a certain certainly some rethinking of the actual mechanics that are, are driving the date disc. Mm-hmm. But uh, my hat's off uh, to to Nomos for finding uh, a unique way to integrate the the date into their their neomatic while still retaining the the DNA that is Nomos that that Bauhaus aesthetic and. 
as you mentioned as well, they're, they're doing everything in-house. This is with an, an in-house movement. And at this price point, it, it really is spectacular value for the money. I've been saying for years that, that Nomos uh, is, is an underrated brand and, and an underappreciated brand, but they are certainly coming more and more to the fore. And I'm certainly seeing them on, on more and more people's wrists and certainly had more and more of them crossing my bench over the years. Yeah, that's great to hear because I, I'm I'm happy to see that people are starting to appreciate what they're doing. And as you said, they're, they're certainly one of the underappreciated brands out there. Mm-hmm. Now, another very obscure brand or unknown to many, perhaps, is Garrick. And they are an English brand. And while the design uh, is a little heavy-handed to my taste, certainly not... Uh, of the the Nomos aesthetic, they have also recently launched their own in-house caliber, and they announced at, at Basel this year the Garrick S1, which contained uh, a movement that they are are referring to as the the UT-G01. Have you had a, a chance to to take a look at this particular piece yet? I've been following Garrick for a couple of years now, and and I'm I'm happy to see they're they're one of the brands who are starting to try and revive watchmaking in Britain again, which is great to see because they were the sort of the timekeepers of the world at one point, and they were producing mm-hmm. uh, certainly the the most innovative timepieces. In fact, we're recording this today on uh, the 325th anniversary of John Harrison's birthday. Mm-hmm. And he, he of course, being responsible for creating the marine chronometer and helping to solve the longitude problem. The British were certainly the the world leaders in watch design, and it's nice to see various brands that are starting back up again, trying to bring watchmaking back into Britain. And while a lot of them, including Garrick, were, were designing their watches and having the movements made, uh, probably in Switzerland for the most part, uh, it is nice to see them bringing the manufacturing of this movement back into the UK. Now, the particular design of this watch, I, I'm not a huge fan of the the dial. It's certainly nice to see the, the movement, uh, you know, to see what they're doing with the movement. But I find, again, going back to the whole idea of the UX of a, of a watch, I find this, uh, this type of dial extremely difficult to, to read in person. And you know, while I, I appreciate what they're doing and I, I have a great deal of respect for for them technically, I, I'm not a big fan of the dial on this uh, this watch because I find it a little bit too busy. And, and they haven't brought everything back uh, over the pond to sure. to the UK from from Switzerland. Um, they've predominantly been basing their their earlier pieces on the the Unitas uh, 6497. Or sixty four ninety eight. I can't remember exactly which off the top of my head. And uh, at first, I'd actually thought the the UT in the UT Geo one stood for for Unitas in a nod mm. that way. And that I, I thought perhaps they were using the the barrel and then the wheels and say the setting works and whatnot. And uh, that there is a, a chance they might still be using some of those components in the the UT Geo one. But it, it turns out the the UT actually stands for uh, Urteil, which is the company run by uh, independent watchmaker Andreas Strache. And he is, is known for mostly his, his, his papillon 
timepieces. Uh, he's mm. done a, a number of unique pieces with uh, mechanical memories, so to speak. So he will use systems, cam systems, similar to what you would see in, say, a split-second chronograph. But he will would use those cams to keep track of, of other measurements of time and say be able to have the the hands of the watch flip to displaying the date and then immediately revert back to showing the time or to switch from chronograph mode to say a, a time only mode and that sort of thing right. but he is uh, in his own words a watchmaker to the brands so a lot of the stuff he sure. he has done you would have, have no idea that he's actually been the one behind it just because of, of ndas and and that sort of thing hmm. uh, but he and his uh, company back in Switzerland are actually the ones behind the majority of the the manufacturing of the the pieces for for this particular watch from Garrick. Now, to their credit, uh, they are are doing quite a number of other things themselves in house. As far as I know, that the free sprung balance, which my hats off to them for including a free sprung balance in their their piece. Uh, I believe they are doing all of that themselves uh, in, the, in the springing and the timing and the adjustment and a bunch of, of the sure. finishing and again they're they're finishing you've got some nice nicely finished interior corners and and whatnot so they've um looking at the back of this watch and uh it has a nice a nice crystal on the back to be able to see into the movement and and they're obviously referencing back to traditional british timepieces uh, they've got large plates and they're using chatons for the jewels and the you know nicely blued screws and, and gold-plated bridges and plates and whatnot i i do like the aesthetics of it i, I like the uh, sort of the simple look of it without being i guess some some of these watches when you look at the movements they are a bit gaudy when you look at the engraving that's that's being done on them uh, mm. but this i like the i like the simple look of it again it's uh in fact i i actually prefer the back of this watch over the front of it <laughs> I think it's. I think it looks better than the front, but anyway, it's. Uh, I do like the look of it. I do like what they're doing with it, and hopefully, we'll see more and more of this uh, happening, and more and more of the manufacturing coming back over to the UK as well. Mm -hmm. Now, from a a movement perspective, uh, an absolute standout piece for me was uh, a piece from Acrivia, which was their Chronometre Contemporain. Uh, which they're actually labeling Rexep Rexepi, which is the, the older of, of the two brothers behind the brand. And uh, both fairly young watchmakers, but uh, they both know what they're doing. And they're phenomenal watchmakers and creators. And uh, the layout of this movement is incredibly well-balanced and well-conceived. Yeah, I've been following the, these two on Instagram for a few years now. And I'm, I'm always struck by not only how technically impressive the watches are and the movements are, but also how, how beautiful the aesthetics of their movements are. Mm -hmm. They always have these well-balanced movements. In fact, the, the movements are often works of art from the point of view of them being, you know, well-shaped and, and whatnot. So mm -hmm. I, I'm a, I, I've been a big fan of their work for a few years now. And I love the look of this watch. The dial sort of hides just how how complex this watch is in the background, and how uh, you know how the how well designed the movement is. And it would be easy to look at this on somebody's wrist and quickly dismiss it as being 
you know, sort of a, a fairly boring watch. So this is this is a bit of a, an understated watch in terms of mm-hmm. what it looks like when you're wearing it. But when you start looking at the the close up photos of the finishing and the details that are in this movement, it's uh, it's certainly a beautiful example of of how to design and finish a watch movement. And keep in mind too, like these are photos of a prototype. This isn't even the the final product yet, and the level of finish that they they've hit Absolutely. on on a prototype piece is, is just staggering. Yeah. And, really, all of their all of their work is the, the 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 finishing, the level of finishing on their work is always spectacular. But you're right, this is a prototype that they're that they brought to the show, and it is just gorgeous. The uh, the work that they put into it and the way that it looks. So, uh, I'm unfortunately these are well out of the range of of anything that I'm uh, I'm going to be able to afford but they are absolutely stunning watches and if you're if you're looking for for an interesting watch in this sort of price range I would highly recommend looking at these they're they're gorgeous gorgeous watches and they're definitely they're they're definitely for sort of the for the the watch collector's watch collector mm. it's one of those things that not many people will understand that that what you're wearing on your wrist but those who do will will really appreciate it and I appreciate too that it is a, a chronometer grade piece because that that balance wheel is daringly close <laughs> to the the pinion of the the center wheel there. And I, I if if I didn't know it was a chronometer, which means it's going to be a piece that's going to keep phenomenal time for a mechanical timepiece, I, w- I would be concerned about just how close that that balance wheel is running there. Uh, but I'm, if it's, I believe them when they say it's a chronometer, so it's yeah. going to keep impeccable time. And they've just really nailed the the aesthetics on that movement so for me this is this is a piece where i, I absolutely uh I, I like the movement side far more than than the face side uh, agreed that that's uh just a, an exquisite timepiece. this might be the the watch that i like the most out of out of this year's basil world just in terms of the the looks of it and again i i tend to prefer a slightly understated dial uh, versus some of the craziness of of the um, the more complex styles and Mm-hmm. You know, like the last one that we were talking about there, the, the Garrick S1. I I much prefer the dial on this versus the the Garrick. So I, I think this this has to be one of my one of my favorite watches from this year. Mm-hmm. And on the subject of, of exquisite finish and and balance wheels, Fotilainen uh, wasn't so much announced at, at Basel World in, in that it I believe it sold before Basel even hit, uh, but. Kerry Votilainen made a, another decimal repeater. I believe it's his 12th decimal repeater. And it, this one is the only one to date to come with a, a regular dial. And it was sold through the Hourglass in Singapore. Uh, but it also is just uh, incredibly well finished. And just a, a, another beautifully conceived and executed movement. Uh, it says built on a, a vintage Abosh. Uh, but uh, Vodilainen has made a, a number of, of changes to the the movement, one being the uh, governor for the the repeating works uh, is actually a, a flywheel-style governor, which would not have been original to this piece. Originally, this would have had uh, something more akin to an escapement that would have been regulating how quickly the the chimes would sound. And the, the unfortunate thing about that, latter style that I mentioned is that you get a bit of a, a chattering sound that intermingles with the, the chimes, whereas with the, the flywheel style governor that, that Votilainen has retrofit onto this 
will run absolutely silently. So all you hear are those nice, clean, crisp chimes. And another area that he has updated on this piece is, is he has given it a, a free-sprung balance, much like uh, a Crivia and, and Garrick. Uh, but the interesting thing here, which I haven't seen him do in any other piece, is he has a combination of gold and titanium inertia blocks for the, the fine adjustment of the piece. And I was a little perplexed by, by this at first, but the more I thought about it, the, the more I realized uh, just how, how clever it is for really fine adjustment because with the the gold inertia blocks a, a very small degree of movement can have a relatively large impact on, on the order of seconds whereas the titanium being quite a bit lighter means it'll be more forgiving in, in terms of how far you you can mm. adjust those inertia blocks so to get really really fine timekeeping on the level of sub-second adjustments, having those those titanium inertia blocks is is really a, a very smart idea, and, and I can I can see now why why he would have done that, and that's a, a a nice touch on that piece as well. This is based on a vintage Ebosh. Are you saying that this is actually a vintage a single vintage movement that he is then? refinished and modified for his purposes or is this something where he's taken that design from the vintage movement and rebuilt it entirely for himself so your your first inclination was was correct uh, this is actually a a vintage caliber this particular one would have been made close to a, a hundred years ago it's a, a louis elise piguet caliber uh, his grandson would have been the the founder of frederick piguet uh, which has since been been purchased by the the Swatch Group and and rolled into to Blancpain, I believe, and a number of his other decimal repeaters were built on Lukut Abash's. And uh, if you if you wanted to yourself uh, at the moment, uh, as we're recording this, you can actually pick up uh, almost an identical base caliber on eBay for about ten thousand dollars from Russia, rather than <laughs> dropping the the three hundred and twenty five thousand dollars that it would cost you to get this particular decimal repeater from Carrie London. And uh, then you can you can put all the, the blood, sweat, and tears into converting it into the, the level of, of finish and detail that, that he has poured into this particular piece. And uh, make yourself a nearly half a million dollar Canadian timepiece. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately I don't um, I don't have the level of skill that uh, that Carrie does when it comes to modifying old uh, movements and turning them into into something like this Mm -hmm. and certainly for ten thousand dollars i'm not going to shell out that kind of money for a movement that i'm then going to hack apart and uh, (laughs) and change into something else i'll do that for a movement that's maybe a tenth of that price but uh, that's that's a little bit uh, a little bit rich for my blood Mm -hmm. very few independent watchmakers have made a minute repeater from scratch Uh, Mm. daniels has done it Pigeon has, and then Christophe Claret was just a master of, of chiming movements mm. and has, has made a, a number of the pieces that you'll find in, in much bigger brands. Now, uh, another bit of follow-up, actually, from our, our chat about Kerry Votilanen in our SIHH episode. Uh, I had, had mentioned that the the 217QR which was his, his retrograde calendar timepiece that he announced there. It was a, a bit of a mouthful in terms of, of the naming of the piece. 
but I've, I've since deduced that uh, there is logic behind that reference and that the, the 217, as with a number of his other pieces, is referencing the year that the caliber was conceived. So it's 2017 without the zero. And the QRS would stand for Quantium Retrograde Second. So uh, a retrograde calendar with seconds. And uh, QP, uh, which you'll see referenced in, in things like Salon QP, which is a both a magazine and uh, a watch event that occurs in, in London each autumn. The QP there, if it seems a little peculiar, stands for Quantium Perpetuel, which is perpetual calendar. Hmm. And for more from Votilainen himself, to hear a, a bit about what it is like for him in, in his day-to-day work and his thinking and and the values that that he has i would really recommend checking out the, the keeping time podcast the latest episode from oster watches out of denver and they had the opportunity to uh, get votilanen on the line and and chat with him for close to an hour uh, about his his work and in his his history and it was uh, very insightful to hear straight straight from the man himself and uh, quite a rare interview as well because it's, it's not often that uh, you hear directly from Votilainen. I was going to say I don't I don't think I've seen a lot of interviews with him or heard a lot of interviews with him and the few that I've found on YouTube have been excellent mm-hmm. uh, so I'm definitely going to check that out because he's uh, he always has interesting things to say and and uh, I'm always I always appreciate his uh, view of of what he does and the work that he's uh, that he's doing. Now, we've been talking about a lot of the more normal watches, I guess you would say, in terms of how they're designed and sort of traditional in terms of their movements and things like that. There there is a, a side of the industry that tends to go a little bit crazy with uh, with watch designs, and I think this year it's been exemplified with the uh, the Grubel Forzi. Uh, quad tourbillon movement now a tourbillon is is an impressive complication to add to a watch as it is it it takes a fair bit of uh, engineering skill and and manufacturing skill to to design a good uh, a good tourbillon and then build it and, and people over the years have done all sorts of weird things with them they've made 3d tourbillons and all all these all these different designs and this year Grubel Forzi has created a quad tourbillon. So there's actually four tourbillon escapements in this watch, helping to regulate the time and keep it more accurate. I have to wonder, you know, what? How many of these things do we actually need in here to help regulate the time better? There, there must be a point where it's just like this is getting kind of ridiculous in terms of the uh, amount of extra work that's going into it. It must be a relatively small gain in terms of the accuracy that you're getting out of this watch with the additional escapements. I will say that fortunately when they uh, when they made this, it is certainly one of the better looking of these crazy watches. Oftentimes they are uh, they're pretty crazy in terms of their case design because they're trying to fit in all of these these uh, tourbillons and their you know their their weird motion and whatnot. So. Uh, they've done a reasonable job of designing a, a nice-looking case for this. I, I'm not sure that I, I'm a fan of this uh, this particular trend of these crazy movements. What do you, what do you think about four tourbillon movements in uh, in this watch? I didn't realize that that Grubel Forzi was even 
exhibiting at, at Basel this year. I thought uh, they had only exhibited at SIHH. I am familiar with their their quadruple tourbillon. On the the subject of of multiple tourbillons or multi-axis tourbillons or, or just tourbillons in general, to me are, are becoming um, more and more of a just a, a showpiece, more of a, an anachronism, particularly when you look at the kind of performance that the likes of, of Rolex and Patek are, are able to hammer out these days. And like every single Rolex coming off the line now with their, their green seal uh, has guaranteed rate of minus two to plus two seconds per day. And in reality, when you drop one of these watches on the time machine, you're looking at flat lines and, and zero in nearly every position. Uh, so sure. they just completely obliterate any rationale for a tourbillon. And the, the tricky thing with a, a tourbillon is you have to be careful about the errors that you are introducing with a tourbillon because you are all of a sudden introducing a whole bunch of other factors that, that can, can throw a wrench in things in terms of your, your timekeeping performance. Now, Grubel 4Z, to their credit, are, are particularly well known for putting the time an effort in to actually make their tourbillons perform well the tech mm. as well uh they they take tourbillons seriously and uh you mm-hmm. typically look at about plus or minus a second a day coming uh out of a, a tourbillon from patek philippe and uh group of 4z as well uh, has run won a number of chronometer competitions in recent years with their tourbillons and actually the whole reason that they introduced the the dual axis Tourbillon was to overcome some of the the problems of having a single axis tourbillon in that the, the single axis will would only account for changes in the vertical positions. So it would average mm. out theoretically changes in the verticals, but not in the, the horizontal positions. Right. Whereas throwing in this extra tilt inside of a, a tourbillon inside of a tourbillon effectively. Mm-hmm. They're able to account for just about any axis you would you'd wear the watch in and, and average things out that way. And then what they're doing by introducing a second of these nested tourbillons is then trying to average out your your daily variance from those using a, a differential. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the the more parts and, and components you add, the the more potential points of, of failure you sure. have. So. Uh, I'll, I mean, to put things into a bit of context, there are a number of, of tourbillons from a number of brands who do not take the art uh, of timekeeping as seriously. And for them, the tourbillon is simply uh, it's a gimmick, a showplace. Yeah, it is a gimmick. And their tolerances for some of these pieces is like minus 30 to plus 30 seconds a day. Oh, wow. Which, I mean, your, your cost timekeeping standard is minus four to plus six. And you can get sure. that out of a, a standard... $200 at a movement with the, the right adjustments. So it's dropping five figures on a, a tourbillon isn't particularly justified if it's not going to keep time like sure. that. So it is more and more, I would say, a showpiece. I guess it's becoming a bit like the zero to 60 times in the car world where it, it gets to a point, if you're if you're accelerating faster than a certain point, the, you know, you're, what's, what's the, what's the reason for that? Like, it's just a, it's just a number that they're showing off or the top speed of a car. They're just they're just sort of showing off that they can do it as opposed to it being something that's practical anymore. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, ludicrous, ludicrous mode in a, a Tesla is, is it's actually painful. <laughs> it's like in punched in the face. It's not it's, uh, not something to brag about, really. Yeah. yeah, when you're getting whiplash from your car, it's uh, and and this this seems to me to be the same kind of thing. You know, you're not getting whiplash from it, but it's it just seems to be a little bit ridiculous. So, hmm. I, I will say that I do love the particular blue that they've managed to get for this dial. Hmm. I don't know how they're doing it. I don't know what the what the finishing technique is for this particular dial, uh, but the combination that they have here of the blue with the uh, the rose gold, and also they've got a black with rose gold. Uh, mm-hmm. The the colors of the dials and the and the case are absolutely stunning, and they've they've done a great job in that. I'm not a huge fan of their their hands, but that's a that's a different thing altogether. But the <laughs> the color combinations they've got for this are are gorgeous. I'm I'm a big fan of blue and gold together, and mm-hmm. and certainly the rose gold looks uh, looks great with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, two of the more over the top and and showy tourbillons that that jump to mind for me are the uh, the tourbillon of tourbillons by by Antoine Prezuso. Uh, which is effectively a a spinning disc of of three tourbillons all all together on different axes. Another one is the the Cobadans, which their claim to fame is that it's the largest tourbillon in a wristwatch. And what what points out to me just the egregiousness of that particular design is just looking at the hairspring breathing on this thing you can tell that they they are not taking chronomet- chronometry mm. seriously in the the least um because you are you are not going to get nice isochronistic performance out of a, a tourbillon with a, a hairspring breathing like that if any tourbillon i see that that does not have a, a an overcoil hairspring or one of the newer silicon hairsprings that that compensate for for concentricity in the just the actual physical architecture of the spring and a, a tourbillon that has a, a pin regulated balance as opposed to a, a free sprung balance. Hmm. Those, the, either of those. They're not taking that a, seriously. A, yeah. The yeah, dead ringer that, that this is not a, a serious tourbillon, but just a, a little ballet for your wrist. Sure. Now something that wasn't released at Basel world this year, but something I've just come across recently, uh, thanks to a Jack Forrester article is the uh, Crayon Everywhere watch. So the claim to fame for this watch that that makes it really interesting is that it shows you the sunrise and sunset times any day of the year, which is something that a number of companies have done before. You can you can use using a series of cams, you can design a clock or a watch for a particular latitude. You know, you can set the set the cam to show off the exact time and of, of sunrise and sunset at that particular latitude. Uh, but what these guys have gone a, a step farther, and they've introduced the ability to program any latitude into the watch, and it will accurately display the sunrise and sunset times any day of the year, which is incredibly impressive. I, I don't know that I've seen anybody do that in even in a, a clock mechanism pulling this off in a in a watch mechanism is incredibly impressive uh, i would love to see how they've managed to do that because as i said most people use use a, a a set cam to indicate the sunrise and sunset time so i would love to see how they're how they're programming this thing because it is it is literally programmed 
you set the the date, the time, the latitude, and you can get all of the accurate sunrise sunset uh, times on your watch. So it's a it's a good looking watch. It's a little bit busy, but obviously they're showing off a lot of material or a lot of information on the uh, watch face. It's also a twenty four hour watch dial as opposed to a traditional 12-hour watch dial so it's a, a little bit different for some people but uh, i i am incredibly impressed with the technical challenge that they've taken on and uh, and what they've managed to accomplish with this mm-hmm. yeah absolutely uh, sunrise and, and sunset complications are, are among uh, my my favorite complications for a timepiece and in terms of a, a, a ux side of things that I tried to, probably more than a decade ago now, nudge ASU Lab, who's the, the research and development arm of the Swatch Group, who were the the brains behind the, the Tissot T-Touch, tried to, to nudge them to include a, a sunrise and, and sunset feature for the T-Touch line, because they can very easily change the position of the, the hour and minute hands on those timepieces. So it'd be a hmm. fairly trivial complication to add to that lineup, but uh, that it's not, to the best of my knowledge, a, a complication, so to speak, that has ever entered any of Tissot's touch line of watches. Uh, but I very much admire the the technical chops that it took for them to pull this off. And I'm very curious to see how they actually achieved this in the, the crayon everywhere. Because to do this mechanically versus digitally, which is how things would have been done in, in a T-Touch, uh, they have somehow managed to do this 100% with just gears and, and cogs and I would imagine some form of cam and the actual display to me reminds me of the the sunrise and, and sunset complication on the Star Caliber 2000 from Patek Philippe which is, right. is a grail watch I will never own and if I did own <laughs> no. would probably never wear <laughs> but rather than just have it a a semicircle they do the the full circumference of the the dial i like the way they've they've decided to project the sunrise and sunset times onto the dial i think they've done a great job of that the mm-hmm. minute hand and hour hands are also well done i like the uh their choice of of showing off the hours that's uh that's a, a nice uh a nice view and i think it works well with the particular um sunrise and sunset uh display they've done in mm-hmm. some ways, this this reminds me a bit of the uh, watch that Hajime Asaoka uh, designed a few years ago. He he created a he's one of the members of the uh, AHCI, one of the independent uh, makers. He's a Japanese watchmaker. He, he decided to take a uh, traditional Japanese timekeeping principle, where the number of hours of daylight and the number of hours of darkness are equal uh so there's always let's say six hours of of daylight every day and there's always six hours of of darkness every day and the length of each hour changes as the time of year changes so the you'll see the you'll see the uh, the hours sort of move uh the hour hand sort of move around a bit uh, fascinating design and and he was able to take this this traditional Japanese clock complication and put it into a watch uh, using again using a series of cams for that. There's a great YouTube video 
that uh, that talks about it, and I'll we'll, we'll put a link to that uh, that YouTube video in the in the show notes. It's worth watching. In fact, it's him preparing the prototype leading up to Basel World a few years ago. Any of these these complications where you're changing uh, something something like this as the as the sort of the year goes on or in a mechanical uh, mechanism is is uh, fascinating to see. I, I love I love seeing people take on these challenges and and do them because they're trivial for us to do in the digital world mm-hmm. but doing them in a mechanical world is is a, a whole other level of uh, design challenge and it's it's nice to see another handful of pieces that really impressed me from basil world this year were the marquetry dial watches from patek philippe patek philippe metier d'art division came out swinging this year at basil there's really delivered on, on a number of levels from enamel through to their marquetry dials. And marquetry is the the art of basically crafting pictures out of small fragments of wood that are, that are cut and shaped to mesh perfectly together to create an image. And, and they have a, a pocket watch with a leopard on it that from a distance you would think was a painting or a drawing but once you get up close you realize that every little spot all the little contours every bit of shading it's all done with different pieces of of wood from different types of trees to lend the the different colors and and grains to the piece and i i just can't imagine the number of hours that would have been been poured into making a a piece like that and they also did a, a two watches uh, with mountain scapes and, and one with a, a pair of climbers on them and they're all really phenomenally well done yeah these these particular watches are certainly not my style i would never even if i had the money for them i i don't think i would ever look at buying these watches but the technical skill that's involved mm-hmm. in in designing these and then and then making these uh rendering these images again using these tiny pieces of wood absolutely remarkable what they've been able to do with it Mm -hmm. and even looking at a high a high-res image of it it's difficult to imagine that it's being rendered using small pieces of wood because it it is absolutely immaculate and uh and just looks looks fabulous what they've done with them Mm -hmm. i have a very deep respect for marquetry artists which was I would say instilled in me after a, a trip to the the Hermitage Museum in mm. St. Petersburg, Russia, right. and uh, I was more enamored by the the floors in a number of the galleries than I was <laughs> by the the actual art on the walls. Just the yeah. amount of of craftsmanship that went into the the marquetry work on the floors in the the Hermitage, and just the sheer square footage uh, is just mind rendingly impressive, and and people just you know, walking all over it and then not, a, not minding at all what, what they're treading on. Yeah. Anybody who's doing this kind of work is, is doing, I, I have a deep, deep respect for what they're able to do. It's, it's not, uh, not what I'm, what I'm keen on, but it, it's incredibly impressive what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And one final note, uh, just to wrap things up on, not specifically related to horology, although somewhat tangentially and and most certainly related to art is that uh, i learned just recently that the metropolitan museum of art has recently opened up their archives not only of high-res images of a number of the pieces 
that they have on display uh, on the order of thousands of pieces, but also uh, their collection of books available for digital download. And they do have several books uh, that detail uh, both a number of clocks and watches in their collection there at the Metropolitan Museum of, of Art, but also just on the history and provenance in general uh, of of timekeepers. Uh, so those are all, all free to download and uh, look great on an iPad. And they've got a, a range of, of books covering a, a wide variety of, of artistic subjects. Uh, another one that, that jumped out at me that I think you and uh, Tamara may, may find interesting, Chris, is uh, one on illuminated manuscripts or illuminations, hmm. which uh, I think we'll, we'll probably do a, a show on it at some point in time. We will. And and I, I was going to say the Met has always been one of the leaders in terms of releasing high quality images of their illuminated works. Uh, we, we've done a, a, a fair bit of study of illuminated uh, documents and, and calligraphy and whatnot in the past and, uh, and also have, have uh, made recreations of a few of these uh, pieces and and the Met has always been one of the leaders in terms of making those images available, uh, even before they were putting them up, you know, sort of wholesale on their site. If if you contacted them, they were always uh, they're always very good about about uh, getting you know good quality images of their uh, their work to you if you uh, if you were looking for them. So I'm happy to see that they've they've started adding their book collection to it as well and. Uh, Hopefully, we see more museums doing this because it's there's so much so much great knowledge like that in the world that's that's hiding in museums that people can't necessarily mm-hmm. get to. So, it's uh, it's worth encouraging uh, encouraging museums to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, most of these books as well it would be to acquire a physical copy of them would, would cost you a few hundred dollars, particularly mm-hmm. for ones like the the illuminations, mm-hmm. and uh, it's yeah absolutely free to. To download and, and peruse and yeah, I just think it's a phenomenal initiative on their part Thanks for listening to Off Hours You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at silver underscore hand.